It's a cute chair, not a ergonomic chair. Oh, ergonomics. I So I've come to the conclusion <sighs> that money should not be spared on shoes, mattresses, and chairs. I'm with you on shoes and mattresses. Chairs. I don't know. Sold. We have their their retail is like twelve hundred dollars. The chairs at the office. Oh, yeah. They don't. I don't get them for retail. I I would hope not. (laughs) No, but still, they're like four hundred bucks, four hundred fifty dollars for the chairs. Very expensive. They're pretty pricey, but they are. They're they're very very comfortable. I needed something where the 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 arms could move up and down because mm-hmm. I, I like that. That's important to me. And then it's just like got proper ergonomics and you can pick and choose the color. So I've got orange like back. And oh, blue, and a blue bottom, <laughs> a blue seat and it works pretty good. And then, and then I have an in at a furniture supply company and she, she said, no, don't, those ones are good, but these ones are way better. And the For price like $20 more. Yeah. Her price was a little bit more. And now we've got all sorts of colors. So pages is yellow and gray and mine is red and gray and, yeah. Look at you guys. I like, I, uh, I just, it, here's a pet peeve of mine. Corporate gear that is all black, like <sighs> hoodies, all black hoodies, like, ugh. and then just here's the standard chair. It's got to be black. Ugh. Why can't people have a little bit of expression? So we pick the chairs that are, uh, uh, let us pick the fabric. That's cool. You're listening to Fixing Faxes, a podcast on the journey of building a digital health startup. With your host, myself, Angela Hopke. And I'm Jonathan Bowers. And I've started Zach in daycare. Ah! Oh! <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> How are you feeling? How's Julie feeling? Uh, it's pretty scary. We, we're just doing transition. So yes. every every day this week, I'm going with him for an hour and being mm-hmm. with him in the space. Yep. And the next week just gets gradually uh, longer yeah. and I'm I'm not there and with them. And then we off. start on the the first, uh, that uh, the 8th or whatever that first day in September is. Um, Ooh, oh. It's scary. It's scary. And, and then, <sighs> and then yesterday, <laughs> Um, we get a call. Okay. So one of the other, uh, families has to self-isolate. This may have been in contact with COVID. And I was like, okay, well, this is the new reality, I guess. This is their new reality. This is a hard moment in life in an especially hard time. Oh, he's doing quite well. He, we went the first day. He cried when we went in there. Of course. So one of the, one of the strange things that we've noticed about the pandemic and our, trying to follow the rules so we don't go anywhere like we don't go into buildings we don't go places and we don't take zach of course yeah and so i can't remember where we went once and he was really afraid to go inside a door he he looked at this new space and he didn't want to go inside and we thought oh this is this is because he's deconditioned to going places (gasps) and then it's kind of the same thing at at daycare on monday he was um he was okay kind of going in, but he didn't want to be inside the room and it was a little bit overwhelming and he cried a bit oh. and uh, he ca- he calmed down fairly quickly. Um, and then he, he cried again when one of the, when one of the girls that was there kind of ran, ran at him. <laughs> he didn't like that very much, um, <laughs> but he got used to it. And yesterday we just spent the hour outside yeah. playing. Lovely. Um, and that was, that was really fun. Yeah. 
I think I think he's gonna be okay. He's gonna be okay. He's I know be he's gonna be okay. Just fine. Um, but it's it's hard. Uh, <laughs> it was about two years ago. Right around now is when we dropped started dropping off Nora for the first time. Yeah, the first time that the actual drop off happened. I wanted to be the one that did it. I'm going to drop off the girls. And then I just sat out in my car and cried both times. Like I was like so adamant that I was going to be the one that did it. And then I sat out in my car and cried and cried and cried and then phoned Brad both times. Like, oh, it's hard. It's so hard. I've been taking him because because I work from home and I'm like, it's just, you know, five minute drive away. So it makes sense for me to be dropping him off and picking him up. And Mm -hmm. Julie works kind of across town. Yeah. In our minds, she had planned on being the one to take him through transition. Of course. Yeah. But they said like, no, it needs to be one parent for the whole the whole two weeks. And so we decided it makes the most sense for me to get familiar with it because I'm going to be doing the one dropping things off. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was really hard because, you know, she was kind of geared up to. She was ready. And, she was prepared to go and do it, and now she doesn't get to, and I'm oh. I'm the one doing it. So oh. it's okay if you sit in your car and cry after. I yeah I, I'm I, I am more emotional about this than I expected to be. Oh, and it and, slaps you in the side of the face, and you don't accept yeah, it, and you're just yeah. like, what? And good for you for taking time off right now. I think far too often we don't take time off in these times in our life where there's some like there's change we always like oh I'll I'll take time off for vacations and I must have vacations and holidays and things like that but we kind of forget that we need space around big change times I think I recognized it but I didn't I didn't realize it was going to be quite as necessary mm-hmm. like I thought oh you know I can I could do half days or something like, no, I'll do the full days. Cause I got lots of like projects. I want to do some reading and some other things that are like just sort of recharge, but wow. I'm glad I have (laughs) all morning to just think and stew about taking Zach to daycare for an hour in the (laughs) afternoon (laughs) and then it's over and done. And then we go play and uh, it's a lot better. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. That's so fun. I love it. That's great. You guys are going to do amazing. I hope so. Okay. Funding. <laughs> bootstrapping. What does bootstrapping mean? Should one bootstrap? Um, Should one bootstrap? I think I understand what the term bootstrapping means, but I, I, I feel a little fuzzy on it. So bootstrapping to me may mean something different than it does to other people. I think bootstrapping is like this broad term. Mm-hmm. And what I do feel like is it's more what it's not. And it's not venture okay. capital. It's not going out and fundraising. Right. Okay. It's finding a way to do it uh, among your tight, small team. In right. a lot of cases, I think for founders, it's probably just themselves, right. family and friends, things like that. But it's not going out and doing the flashy venture capital parade. <laughs> <laughs> the parade, <laughs> the pageantry. It right. <laughs> it is a so, little bit. Yeah. yeah. So this, so so CRS and mm-hmm. Clinact is mm. not. Um, we are not venture not backed. Venture venture backed. No. So there's no there's no institutional money. 
there's no external money either, no. I don't think. There's no external so, money. There's no institutional money. There's no venture money. There's no in- angel money outside of, you know, co-founders. There's there's none of that. But it was a process to get there to decide that. And I think that's right. more what I kind of wanted to talk about today was if somebody like understanding what bootstrapping versus investment looks like, capital investment looks like, and then why we went the route that we did, I think is an interesting process. Well, tell, t- I mean, walk me through that a little okay. bit. Like the, so it's not venture funded. I mean, there, there, there certainly is, I don't want to say pressure, but there is a bit of, you know, keeping up with the Joneses-ness to venture funding where people celebrate how much funding Holy you've received. Moly, right. And uh, I remember, I think it may have been like Steve again, Steve Wonder said, you know, you don't celebrate the fact that the chef went and acquired all the ingredients. <laughs> I like that a lot. Like, you don't celebrate that. You celebrate the the meal, not yeah, yeah, not the fact that he went shopping. No, but t- way too often we are celebrating yeah. this shopping. You see so often all these people celebrating these, you know, seed funding, series A, series B closures of millions and millions or whatever it looks like. And it's attractive. Who doesn't want to go out and get millions of dollars and say that you did? But back to Steve's point is, but I also don't want to just celebrate the the fact that I went out and got some ingredients. Who? You still have to you still have to mix all that stuff together. Still got to do it. (laughs) Yeah, still do it. Still make the business make sense. Yeah. So did you feel that? Did you feel that pressure? That peer pressure to go off and do some external funding? I think it's industry pressure. I think it's peer pressure. I think it's oh gosh, it even comes to like feels like a bit of a popularity pressure. Just Mm -hmm. like all these kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. I got got caught up in that for a little bit. I figured we could. We had a good idea. Who is to say that we couldn't do that? There was a time when I wanted to go out and fundraise and go down that road. And then a couple things happened that really changed the course. And Man, Steve Wanley is going to get some shout outs in this episode, but (laughs) he sat me down and said, okay, Angela, like, first off, what's your TAM? TAM is your total accessible market. Yeah. We're dealing with uh, primary care providers and specialists, our our customers. So I gave him the numbers, kind of Western Canada, Canada. Mm -hmm. And he just looked at me and he's like, you're not going to get any institutional money with that TAM. And... It was so embarrassing because I was like, yeah, you're absolutely right. How the hell did I figure that I was going to? Like, it was just so obvious. Right. So, I mean, that was the number one thing where I was like, well, this is like, why would I bother then? So then that was kind of like the fall of last year. And I was like, okay. So Sorry, if- like, can we, before we go yeah. onward. So the you look at the numbers for, for your total addressable market for your TAM and it's, it's too small. It's too small. Yeah. And so for, why for would that institutional like... money? So right. institutional money wants to see high growth, high numbers. They want to see millions of users. They want to see the fact that you can be the horse that wins the race in like right. the money race. Right. Right. And with uh, a TAM just 
at this point focused on Canadian doctors is not a number large enough for right. institutional investors to be interested in you. And it was a bit, like I say, it was a bit embarrassing because I probably should have figured that out, but it right. took somebody yeah. to kind of like look back at me and hold the mirror up and go, how do you figure that this would, <laughs> you're right, it won't. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was a big one. It was also becoming, oh, how, how do I say that? It was also becoming not just a distraction. Like I was spending so much time trying to learn about institutional money. Mm, yeah. Learn about um, who was doing what out there, uh, how to do it, how to align, how to find an investor, how to find an investor that aligns with the, the principles and ethos of your company. And I mean, and that's, you know, we'll get to the kind of that part and yeah. the fact that we're a social enterprise and you need that alignment more so than ever. I wanted yeah. smart money, meaning that I wanted an institutional investor that was that knew about digital health and understood the product and the market and all. And it was just becoming overwhelming, distracting, and I was spending too much time focusing on that rather than focusing on what the what the hell did the product look like? What were, yeah. what were we building? What did the meal look like versus what ingredients did I want? Yeah. And it, it, at that point you, you didn't have a sense of, yeah, there wasn't, there was no product. There, there was, was no, no product. We had ideas. There was no traction. We yeah. ha had nothing. And that was the other thing we were going to go out and what, what was I thinking? I was going to go out and sell an idea yeah. with a small TAM to institutional investors. I would have got laughed out of rooms. That was the first reason that we were just like, no, up until last year around this time, we had floated ourselves on government funding. Mm -hmm. uh, we did fine. Like we paid salaries. So that was, well, some salaries. And that was <laughs> partially paid for people. And so- to, uh, to, to, to be clear, you haven't, you don't owe people money. Oh. This was a- <laughs> <laughs> no. No, no, you, no, you weren't drawing a salary is what you're saying. Yes, I think, exactly. Okay. <laughs> we also didn't have like, there wasn't really employees at that yeah, point. Yeah, they were there, all yeah. contractors. It was a project. If yeah. you very much look at like, you know, um, the idea of a project and that's what we were doing. Then the next thing I thought was, well, we have to look for venture capital. That's what people do in my position at this point. Right. We're running out of money. So what do we do? Well, we go out and find money. So then that that reality check last fall was a harsh one, but an incredibly important one. And then that's when I decided, well, we need to make this work by bootstrapping. And so bootstrapping is in my in my definition, in Angela Hopkins' definition of bootstrapping, it is you find money among your very close group of people. So in my case, it was co-founders. And and I think it's typically their founders, co-founders, or very, maybe a small friends and family. I don't even know if that's... Is friends and family round? I guess, would that be considered bootstrapping? I, I mean, I would think so. Like, I feel like your it's friends, on the cusp, your, right? Your friends and family certainly... <laughs> They don't have the sophistication no. to invest like an institutional investor mm -hmm. would. I mm -hmm. think it's more like it's more like they're investing in you, not yeah. their business. Yeah. So I, I think that would be 
So we got, yeah, so we got to the point where it was about January, February, we were running out of money. I think we had, you know, and I have no problem saying this because it is, it's kind of humorous. And I think people need to hear the reality of all of this (laughs) is I sat my, my shareholders down and I said, we have one more payroll left in the bank account and then we're done. I was like, so I don't, know what to do next. I've done everything I can up until this point. And, and now, now I'm looking at you guys to help out. And that's when we bootstrapped, we got some people from the group that said, yep, we will help fund this for the next year. It was the best thing in so many ways. What it did is it re-engaged the group of people that I Mm -hmm. was, was working with had skin in the game again. And I think for me, what it was too is these are smart people and they believed in me and the idea. And that was so empowering and just allowed me to, to kind of have the confidence to make the decisions again and like move forward. So it was, it was honestly the best thing that could have happened. What for us was to just say, no more going after institutional money. It's not going to be there. It's going to be a distraction. It's going to be overwhelming. You're probably not going to be successful. Your failure rate is high. What else can you do? And I was lucky enough to have a few people that were willing to say we can help. Yeah. I think also it would be a very strange conversation with a venture capitalist to go in and say, our co-founders who are surgeons (laughs) didn't put in any money of their own. <laughs> now let's be clear. They like everybody had put in money. At this sure. Point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 But yeah, fair to, to go to them and say, they're not willing to put in any more. Maybe uh, yeah. it just would have been a really awkward conversation. Like yeah, yeah, there's so yeah. many reasons it would have been a bad conversation. Like there's, there's only so much money that your founders and co-founders and friends and family can kick in. Oh, so if yeah. you were successful at getting some institutional money, that would be maybe multiples or, orders of magnitude, more money, mm-hmm. perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, founders and friends and family are writing much smaller checks than venture capitalists. Correct. Would. So does does not having that in place, what does that change for you and for the plans of the business? I think for us, it, it made us focus on the business plan itself, focus on the cash flow models. I ended up having to build out a very detailed three-year cash flow model and understand it so well and really really focus on the the minutia of of the the product and the company and understanding that that has helped me make better decisions it's also helped us hopefully because we still are not sustainable but hopefully create a sustainable business model in the end is be because we are kind of penny pinching it's forcing us to be really resilient and really like kind of tight with their, with our money, like make really good decisions. We're not going out and just hiring a bunch of people. I think at the end of the day is the big question is, um, and you were alluding to it is, is does this inhibit the growth of the company? Does not taking the big check mean that you're on a different trajectory than if you were to take that big check? I think it's so individualized to the company, the founders and things like that that, you know, to answer that question, I think for us, I think it would have put us on not a great path. I I truly think that the one that we're on is the right one and the one that we should be on. 
I think there's a lot of people out there that don't think you can grow without institutional-based money. And I think that's wrong. I, I think I think there's so many other reasons that you can grow, attracting the right talent, having a sustainable business plan that makes sense and having a product that people want. I mean, the list goes on. It does not have to do with how big the size of the check that you got was. We're not trying to be a Facebook or an Instagram where exactly. that growth, that growth is so expensive. The hyper growth. Yeah. And you like you acquire customers one like without even necessarily having a business model. Right. The business model makes sense, right? You're the business model is you're getting money from customers, mm-hmm. not not from somewhere else. Exactly. Some imagined other place that you haven't figured out yet. So that seems pretty clear. You're not gonna get that hyper growth, which I don't think you were gonna get anyways. Exactly. I don't think we we had the model for hyper yeah. growth anyway. Which would have been another reason that I probably would have got laughed out of rooms, right? Like yeah. it would have just been like, no, thank you very much, but carry on. We're not the pony that's going to win the the money race, right? No. And that's what that's what institutional money is really geared towards. There's also a like for us, we're a social enterprise. We have values and ethos at the epicenter of what we're doing, and how hard it would have been to maintain those at the epicenter with a really large check and an expectation with that large check to grow, grow, grow at all costs. You wouldn't just be taking on money. You'd also be taking on some new bosses. Bingo. Yep. And that's another reason it would uh, would have been a really difficult path to find the right person. We would have needed somebody that understood the industry, understood the world that we were kind of in, that also had money, that also was okay with us having, you know, security, privacy, and patience at the at the center mm-hmm. of our model, not return on investment. I think one of the other issues that might be interesting here is that, it, like, being in Kamloops, there's very few, there's very few people in Kamloops that are writing checks. I can count on my hands the few that I know who might, but they also don't have the experience. Like so so who in Kamloops can one write a check, two has some understanding of operating a digital health company, and three is interested in some of this social side of things. I I don't even I don't I don't even know. So yeah. no one in Kamloops for sure. BC would be even a question mark. And then getting out of that, I I mean, I'm I haven't been in the tech industry for decades. I don't know all the names of all the people. And so just getting in front of people would have been absolutely hard, high effort, low success. Because you're kind of the only founder. I mean, that's not true. Like you no. have other founders, yeah. but you're the only one that is operational um, operational right yep. so yeah you're you're the one that is building the product finding customers mm-hmm. managing the whole the whole thing so then to for you to spend half or all of your time trying to find the you know that one or two individual investors who would make a difference seems like like yeah like you said like an extreme amount of an effort an extreme amount of effort yeah exactly yeah And I mean, when I put it, you know, when I put it back to my co-founders to say, hey, 
we're, we're in a really tough spot right now. And this is what it's going to take to get us out of it. And they said, yes, that might've been like, I mean, in this whole journey of Clinect, <laughs> that might've been one of the highlights for me. The day that we launched the product was amazing also, but when they like literally came back and said, absolutely, we got you. Wow. Yeah. And I, to be honest, Jonathan, I was scared to ask because it was a big ask. And these people I consider friends. And yeah. it was a really hard thing to ask. But then I also come back to, well, if I can't ask my co-founders and I can't explain <laughs> it to them, yeah, do I think I'm cocky enough to then go walk into a room of strangers and pitch it to them? Maybe, but like probably shouldn't if I can't even yeah. pitch it to my own you know, founder group. Yeah. It's such a tough decision. Like even when, you know, Steve was like, I don't even know if why you're considering this. I was a bit like, but maybe I could like, maybe I could come up with a reason why I can convince you, you know, but it's such a journey. All of this is such a journey. Oof, this one's been, uh, really eye-opening. I have a friend who's also like, so she's a co-founder of a tech company in Regina and we are so similar in where we sit. Like we are both the a co-founder, the operational co-founder. She's, she sits as a CEO. Also, we both are building a team. We launched our products within two months of each other. Oh, cool. Uh, we both have little uh, girls that are like yeah. roughly the same age. Like we're just like, I found, I found my, like my, my tech BFF and <laughs> she went after uh, institutional money. Oh, so this has been a yeah. really interesting journey. And we like, we have FaceTime coffee every Tuesday and we talk about life and the products and just everything. Like we talk about everything and uh, it's been so interesting to hear her journey around going after the big checks and going yeah. after, yeah, the institutional money. And I tell you the amount of time that she spends doing that is. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. Does she regret it? No, no. She okay. has a product that makes, it makes a heck of a okay. lot more sense. Yeah. But it's been really interesting to like have our like compare worlds around mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just it's it's an interesting world. And I'm not and I I'm not saying that she shouldn't have gone for that money. I think I think what the what it's done is it's made a lot of sense for her. Mm -hmm. It's introduced her to a lot of people that have helped her too. So even the yeah. introductions themselves have been amazing. It's so individual, but I think it's so attractive to go after institutional money yeah. that sometimes we have to just pause and really understand, is this the right thing for the company? Is the right thing for, for you as the founder too? Because it can change everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm glad, we, I'm, I'm glad we didn't. I'm glad we are on the path that we chose. Sweet. Ask me in a year though, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, Am we'll I still that... happy with my decision? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Fixing Faxes, building a digital health startup. I'm Jonathan Bowers. My co-host is Angela Hopke. Our music is by Andrew Codeman. Follow us on Twitter at Fixing Faxes. 
You can find us wherever you like to listen to podcasts. We'd love for you to do us a favor and tell a friend. Thanks for listening. We had Nora's birthday, third birthday. Oh, that's right. You know what she wanted for a cake? It was, I would like a rainbow farm cake. Yeah, of course. Like a farm that grows rainbows? I have no idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs>